In Session with Dr. Farid Holakwi. Good afternoon. Welcome to In Session. I'm your host, Dr. Farid Holakwi. And I'll be with you for the next two hours here on Radio Hamra. Studio number to call in, 310-441-0555. You can follow me on Twitter or Instagram or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show or suggest topics or books for the program and the shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my SoundCloud page and podcast on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Let's get to the books of the week. The book of the week for this week that I'll talk about next week is... Awe by Datcher Keltner. Awe, the new science of everyday wonder and how it can transform your life. Even saying that word, I know it sounds a bit awkward. Awe is in A-W-E. Um, as it says, that's the everyday wonder. So when we say something is awesome or awe-inspiring, it's this type of a feeling that we are talking about. And, and this book just came out, and I'd heard about it before it came out. So I wanted to, to check it out and see what it's all about. And so look forward to reading it and sharing it with you next week. The book of the week from last week that I'll be talking about today is The Little Book of Luca by Mike Viking. Although when I heard him talking somewhere, they introduced him as Mike Viking, uh, but it's W-I-K-I-N-G. I heard it as Mike Viking. Uh, he is the CEO of the Happiness Research Institute in Copenhagen. The Little Book of Luca, which is L-Y-K-K-E, is a Danish word which translates to something like happiness. I read his book, The, the Little Book of Huga, a few months ago and talked about it, I think, back in August. Um, and Huga is this Danish concept of uh, we don't have an exact translation in English, but it reflects this type of warm coziness that people can experience together. Let's say when you're with a group of small friends by a fire, there's a sense of warmth, both physical and emotional, that people feel. And Danish people will actually talk about an experience, a party or a gathering, or even restaurants and coffee shops based on how huga it is and how much it gives them that sense of this feeling. But so in this book, um, he goes on to talk about happiness, which is, as I mentioned, him being the CEO of the Happiness Research Institute, which he founded, something that he studies looking at people around the world. And so he talks a lot about Danish people and Danish life in, in this book, but he also talks about people from other cultures and how they apply some of these uh, characteristics or qualities that he talked about can contribute to our well-being uh, based on the research that he has done. So to begin with, when we talk about something like happiness, or even if I take a step back from that, talking about happiness or what we measure, often when people talk about how a country is doing, they focus on the economy or something like even one factor of the economy, like GDP, growth, growth, gross domestic product. How is the country doing? And we say, how much growth did we have? 2%, 3%, 4%. Was it more than expected, more than previous years? Um, and that can be just this indicator for many people that they say, that means the country is doing well. If the GDP went up, country is doing well. And I always felt like this was very, very lacking in a variety of ways. Even just one measure like the GDP um, is a very poor indicator of 
how people are doing overall. Because if just the very, very wealthy got wealthier, but everyone else is doing the same or even worse, it could be a good year as far as the GDP goes. Um, then we have other indicators or numbers like a Gini coefficient, but even still these are, are limited. So even from an economic standpoint, we can often miss the point to me, which is how are most people doing or how are people doing overall, not just looking at one number um, or one index. But on top of that, what we want to be looking at, even when we people talk about the economy or economics, is how are people doing? And so it might make more sense to go more directly into those kinds of indicators or understandings. How are people doing overall well-being? How do we measure that? And so that's something that uh, Mike Viking is doing at the Happiness Research Institute is to focus on things like happiness, how countries are doing when it comes to this, what seems to correlate or cause people's happiness and well-being to go up, go down, where is it working, what what works where, and all those kinds of things. So um, I, I completely agree with that because even when we think about economics, that's why people focus on it is that we want to see how people are doing, but we can often miss the point, which is that it's not measuring what we want it to, and we need to go more directly to understand how people are doing. And, and even some countries have um, created political offices, things like minister of happiness or uh, kind of like a secretary of state we have here, but it would be like a secretary of happiness or well-being, which it's not just to sound cute or sound sweet to say that that person has that position, but really that there's a focus on people's overall well-being. And so happiness is a very difficult thing to measure, but even before that to define, because what does happiness mean? It's not that simple. We might all think, obviously, it's something pleasant and good, but there are many, many definitions to happiness, um, just like is true of many things, but especially of psychological factors. We see things like intelligence. We have such a hard time defining it. It's defined in hundreds of different ways. And happiness can have a similar problem. Now, uh, he, he talks about in this book that it is hard to define and describe and then to measure, but that that doesn't mean we shouldn't put a lot of time and effort into understanding and measuring it or that any research in this direction is a waste because of that. Um, he says how we also do lots of research on depression, but depression is also hard to define clearly and to have everyone agree on it. And it's probably many different things. And then it's very hard to then measure it and to measure improvement or see how people are doing as well. All those things are difficult, but it doesn't mean that we can't make attempts and that our research is futile or won't have any kind of benefit to understand that. So I completely agree with him there. Uh, and on top of that, that we measure things like depression, anxiety, and study them, and absolutely we should, but also we can measure the positive aspects of how people are doing, like happiness, joy, their overall well-being. Just like with physical health, we of course want to pay attention to symptoms and diseases that are hurtful and harming people and see how we can treat them, but we also want to focus on the positive aspects of health and how to increase those, improve those as well. And so when we look at happiness, there are as I said, many different ways to measure it or define it. Uh, he talks about three different ways um, that we can look at. One is the 
affective or hedonic. So how does it feel? And this one is more like a momentary type of an experience. Like if you look at yesterday, were you depressed, sad, anxious, worried? Did you laugh? Things like that. That's how they measure the affective. It's more in the moment. But then they have a cognitive dimension of happiness that he talks about. And that's more about when people step back and evaluate their lives. So more of a general sense of your life, not just this in the moment. So you can be having a horrible day, but still feel in this cognitive dimension very happy or or feel good about your life. Um, To me, this is sometimes, uh, I like also words like contentment or how content are you with your life? How do you feel about your life overall, which can relate to other things? And then he also says there's a a third one, which is um, a Greek word, eudaimonia, E-U-D-A-E-M-O-N-I-A. And that is more related to Aristotle's perception of happiness, which focuses on things like meaning and purpose. And actually, to me, these are very, very important factors. I will often talk about how I think happiness is overrated because I, again, it does depend on how you define it. But often people think of happiness as just feeling good in a moment. And I think that's very overrated. What is much more important is how, as I was saying, the contentment, but also having a sense of meaning and purpose in life. In a way, to me, those are like deeper measures of our well-being and our experience that will be longer lasting rather than looking at how we're feeling in a moment. And of course, if you're feeling good about your life overall, you likely have many good experiences and feel good um, many times. But that to me, should not be our aim to make sure I'm feeling good in every moment. Because often what leads to the more meaningful life, the more purposeful life, is going into more challenging things that in the moment feel worse. And so if we focus on that hedonic sense of what feels good and let that be my guide, let me do the thing that feels best in this next moment, oftentimes that will lead me in a good direction, but it often will lead me into short-term experiences and gains and and things in my life. So the things I do as far as my career and investing in myself for my health, if you focus just on short term, that's not good. In our relationships, if you say, well, should we talk about the the difficult thing or just enjoy the moment? Um, Well, you might end up making your relationship weaker or not as strong as it could be and not as meaningful as it could be by going into those difficult places that then leads to more intimacy and closeness. So to me, that uh, eudaimonia is very important, but I would definitely, between the cognitive or the affective, focusing on the cognitive, that sense of when you step back and look at your life, how do you feel? That to me is is much more critical. And so he says in this book, he focuses more on that um, aspect, the cognitive dimension, but also purpose and meaning show up as well. And so when I, you know, he shares so many different studies in the book, uh, different, you know, measurements and happiness indexes and things that they have. And again, because of how hard it is to measure, I think it's different than if someone is telling me they're measuring the temperature, that if someone says it's 12 degrees, that has a different difference than 10 degrees. But when they say happiness is 5.3 versus 5.5, I'm not saying it doesn't have meaning, but I think it's a bit different when we look at those measurements, which is just true of any type of cognitive or psychological dimension. But, you know, he himself is Danish and he created this happiness institute in Copenhagen, kind of like a think tank. 
Um, and, and even he shares it that him for himself was this meaningful thing that initially led to him not making money the first few years of it. He really was making no money. He said something like, I was not making money and I was working harder than I've ever worked, but I was also happier. He felt really good. And so he shares that experience. And to me, that's very crucial for all of us to keep in mind, because when we think about creating a good life, or as I say, like the recipe for a good life, if we have the wrong recipe, you're obviously to get the wrong thing. If you're trying to make a cake, but you have a recipe for bread, you're going to be very disappointed with how not sweet your results might be. So you have to have the right recipe. But what I'll do is after the break, I want to get into different aspects that Heath finds in his research are critical for um, countries having happiness. So he talks about these global type of issues or even issues for a nation to have or to keep in mind. But then he shares individual stories as well. So there's lessons for us to take. It's not just um, research that's directed towards governments. We can focus on all of these. So after the break, I'll get into these different characteristics that he talks about, these um, six crucial elements. So there's togetherness, like a sense of community, money. So money does obviously relate to our happiness, especially in our the lower end. If we have a certain amount of um, our needs met, if we don't, it's hard to feel happy. Then there's health. Um, then there's freedom. And in freedom, this book was released in 2017, and he shares from the 2015 report. So this was before much of what we're talking about happening in Iran now, but he it said that Iran was in last place when it came to freedom. I think it was 152nd out of 152 countries that were measured. So I'll talk a bit about that freedom. Um, then there's trust. And the last one is kindness. So after the break, I will get into these different components of things that factors that are related to happiness uh, and continue discussion on the little book of Luca by Mike Viking. Let's go to a commercial break. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Continuing the discussion on the book, the little book of Luca by Mike Viking. And so in this book, he's talking about research that has been done on happiness and looking at the happiest nations in Denmark always ranks among one of the highest um, when it comes to happiness. And so he found six factors that he noticed those countries tend to do well, those that do well in happiness. And I mentioned before the break, let me get into each one in a little bit more detail. So the first one is togetherness. And so first and foremost, other long-term studies on research have found that the quality of our relationships seems to be the best predictor of our long-term happiness and emphasis on the word quality. Things like how many people could you call if you really needed something, or let's say you were stuck somewhere or really needed someone to talk to. And sadly for many people, the answer to that question is zero. They don't feel like they have anyone they could call on. Um, and that is lacking that sense of togetherness and that sense of community and connection and relationships that really serve us well when it comes to our overall long-term happiness. So there's those types of individual relationships that we have and the quality of it. But also he, he shares stories and um, insights related to a sense of community. And this is definitely something many authors have discussed about how we have lost more and more this sense of community 
uh, in our lives that people tended to have. Even it could be one of the reasons why people who are still members of religious communities can experience some boosts to their well-being is that they have this sense of community and connection that many of us have lost. And this book was written in 2017, but I'm curious to see the impact that the the pandemic has had on this sense of togetherness. It really did isolate us in a lot of ways that, that impacts our well-being and how we're doing. Of course, people turn to other ways of connecting, which I think helped make it less harmful, but still would not replace the face-to-face, in-person types of togetherness that we can experience. Um, so he shares stories, as I mentioned, there's this more, more global types of research, but then individual stories of a, a woman who transformed their block into this community. And so people would, um, you know, create different lists of things, for example, they could do and things they would want to do. So, for example, three women wanted to sing, but then there was also a woman who was an ex-member of a choir. And so she, together with them, created like a singing group or people would share, you know, like one child said, I'd like to, I can babysit your cat or watch your cat if you need that. Or someone else had too many mulberries because when the mulberry season would come, they'd had so many that they couldn't eat them all. So they would share them with others. So um, small ways that people can create this sense of community with the people around them and to create this sense of togetherness that can be very uh, important in creating a feeling, a long-term feeling of happiness. The second one is money. Um, and actually on the way here, I, I didn't realize until I was talking about the book, I was listening to the Pink Floyd song, Money. It wasn't intentional. And if you haven't heard that song, I, I highly recommend it. But um, this research on money is, of course, he says, it's very complicated when we look at the relationship between money and happiness and uh, as has been discussed many times before is that yes when we're talking about people who have very little and when you're stressed about getting your resources met or your basic needs met and you actually can't get them met then you are going to be unhappy it's very difficult to be happy in that sense but then once you get to a certain point additional money won't make you much happier won't affect your happiness Um, I've seen some research saying not at all some saying maybe a little bit and he actually does talk about ways to use your money to make it contribute to your well-being even more Um, but that increase is not going to change much and so this is often why we are so focused on the economy when you look at how people are doing we say well if GDP went up people are doing well it's that when we look at countries or people who are doing much worse financially, then yes, if you improve the economy, they will be doing much better because of that. But then it's not that infinite growth is the goal. That's actually not possible and not an aspiration we should strive towards. And, you know, him, the author, Mike Viking, being from um, a country that's much more socialist like Denmark, where they pay high amounts of taxes. And he says, actually, people are very happy to do so. I think the number was something like 80% of Danes feel good about paying taxes because they know that it's going to taking care of others and comes back to them as well. But taking, making sure everyone's taken care of, um, we can see that his mindset is much more about people not having excesses of wealth. And I totally agree with that. And inequality seems to breed unhappiness as well. So um, the ways we can use our money, though, in 
beneficial ways if you do have it. Lots of research has found that rather than focusing on buying things, objects, um, focus on buying experiences. And actually even the anticipation of a fun experience, a good experience can be helpful. So um, this is something I've thought when you surprise someone, which can be really cool and fun thing to do let's say you just drive them to the 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 location of a concert of their favorite artist without telling them you have tickets it's really a cool surprise and that moment is really uh, exciting and beautiful but you can rob them of that anticipatory excitement if they knew from a month in advance that they were going on that concert or to that concert they would be thinking about it maybe every day or anytime they heard that artist, they'd get excited. And so you would take that away from them. So it's, you know, give and take. Maybe sometimes it could be nice to have that surprise moment. Um, and that might be something they'll never forget too. But it's, it's something that they'll miss is that excitement of anticipating what's happening. And so he was talking about you can do that, book something six months in advance. Or even he had something about five years or ten years in advance. Big, book, book a big experience for yourself. And maybe you'll keep anticipating and building up to that. Um, but it does seem very clear. And when I think of myself, certain experiences that I have that I'll never forget. Um, and it doesn't always mean they cost money either. Sometimes they might, but they don't have to. But the experiences are the things that um, we get more bang for your buck, so to speak. The next one is health. And so, of course, if you're um, very sick and ill, it's going to affect how you feel and how good you feel about yourself and your life and so he was also talking in this uh, section or these these chapters about how um, the overall health of people and being taken care of and and in Denmark that people are not worried about paying their hospital bills or their medical bills the same way they might be here in the United States for many people you know if you're listening to this show in another country maybe you'll feel this is shocking too but often people in the United States they get a diagnosis, they have cancer, they have some kind of medical illness, and they try to get money from other people. They make online campaigns or people make them for them to get the money to pay for their treatment um, because they can't afford it, which is, I think, one of those things that already is uh, sad and laughable about how um, what we're doing is so wrong. But I think in future generations, they'll be shocked Actually, I, should, you know, I think we're pretty shocked right now, but I think it'll be even worse when they look back on us and how could they possibly have enough money and let people suffer and die because they didn't have enough money. Um, I think it's really horrible. And so when we look at health, the overall well-being of the nation is going to impact the, the happiness clearly. But um, he also shares that things in Denmark do make people more active. So Denmark uh, and Copenhagen is known as the biking capital of the world. I've seen things like that before to describe Denmark. But if you're there, I was there and I saw it's there's bike traffic where there's so many people biking that it could, they can have to slow down. There's bike lanes on every street. It's just very much a biking town. Um, and you have to be very careful when you're crossing the street because the bikers come in quick and they don't stop the same way the cars do. And so that a few times I, I got pretty close <laughs> to getting hit by a biker. So you, you, you see that they focus on that. They make it easier to bike. It's good for the people because you're more active. So you see people of all walks of life biking, including members of their parliament, people in government, to business people, to students. 
they're all biking. It's a very common form of transportation. As he says, uh, I heard him giving an interview. It's not just for health and because it's good for the environment, which are both true, but it's also more convenient. Um, you, anyone who lives in L.A. can imagine the ease if you just could just park a bike anywhere and go where you were going rather than looking for parking and dealing with the traffic that we deal with. So um, it does make things easier. So health is important, of course, for your overall well-being. And so a country would do well to focusing on its citizens' health and making sure everyone's taken care of. Uh, and each of us individually as well can do that. Um, the next one is freedom. How much can people do what they want to do in their life? And this uh, understandably has a big impact on our well-being. And, you know, so when I saw that, again, this book came out about five, six years ago, but we say woman life freedom, that last one, freedom we see, of course, we know, but how critical it is for our sense of well-being or happiness. And if you don't have freedom, it can be virtually impossible to be happy. So we can understand why people are fighting so much for that in Iran and how much they deserve that. It's really a human right to have that. Um, but as I mentioned before the break, there was a human freedom index that came out in 2015, and it ranked different countries on how they ranked on as far as the freedom of its people. Denmark was fourth, but then the lower countries, Russia was 111th, China was 132nd, um, Saudi Arabia was 141st, and last at 152nd is Iran. I'm looking at it here in the book. So um, again, this was back in 2015 when this index came out. I don't know if they've done another one every several years, but um, something you don't want to be last in for sure is the freedom of your people. And sadly, Iran was ranked that by this human freedom index back in 2015. So of course, freedom is something that if you don't have it, it's hard to be happy and have that well-being and having that freedom to live your life the way that you want is very important to um, make you have a chance to be happy. Um, the next one on these factors, number five, is trust. And so he was talking about the more that a country has trust, the better people feel, which makes sense and seems pretty obvious. But what do you do to create trust in a in a country? And he talked about here also inequality, how when there is more inequality, it doesn't breed trust, it breeds mistrust. Um, he did share about how you can go to coffee shops in Copenhagen and you might see uh, a baby asleep in a stroller outside and the mom or dad went in to get a coffee and comes back out, something that we usually would not see here in the United States. You even may, might get arrested or get in trouble if you left your baby unattended, but there, there is more of this sense of trust and safety and so they feel comfortable doing those things. Um, things that we might not at all expect here. So trust is very important when we look at a nation and how happy its people are. And that's going to relate to things like inequality, but of course, corruption and things like that as well, and the type of culture that we create. And the last one, the sixth one, he mentions, and he, in my reading of it, he made this one seem so important, is kindness, even combining it with some of the other ones, and how kind people are to one another and how they feel about one another. Um, he highlighted volunteering also in this chapter, which I think is really important, something that people undermine at times and they think of just like a nice thing to do. And it is, of course, you're helping others. But 
it also helps you. And so this is kind of that selfish way, but a win-win type of a selfish thing to do. Um, he talked about a helper's high. So maybe you've heard of a runner's high, but a helper's high, that feeling that we get when we help someone and we're making them feel good. And I, I remember years ago reading research looking at how volunteering can be good for people who are depressed. And so I've actually recommended this to many clients when it seemed like it might fit for them. And so it can feel paradoxical if I'm feeling so bad and if I can barely take care of myself because I'm so depressed, um, how could I even start to help someone else and how would that make me feel better? Well, it, that makes sense to, to see that logic, but when we look at what actually happens, we can also see how it can make sense that helping others would make us feel good. For one, when we're feeling depressed, and this is not just if you're feeling depressed, in general, a lens towards yourself inward, too much within yourself is not a good thing. When we're too stuck on ourselves, we're not going to feel good. We feel isolated. We're going to notice the negative. We won't be feeling in a, in a good state of mind. So when we volunteer, it forces us to put our lens outward and onto other people, the people that we are interacting with to help. Um, often we also interact with others in the process of whatever volunteering that we're doing, and those things can help us feel better. Also, when you help someone, you of course are in that way demonstrating to them, but really to yourself also, your own strength and abilities that I can do something. Um, you know it feels good when someone asks you to help them in a way that you can do, especially it's something that many people can't do or that might be challenging. You feel really good because you're displaying that sense of your own vitality and your strength. I'm reminded of um, Eric Fromm. I really love his uh, argument or his statement about it's better to give than to receive. We hear that a lot and we usually think it's because if you're giving, it's more noble because it hurts more or it's more painful to give. But he, he says that it's not better to give to receive. It's not for, because of those reasons. It's actually that in giving, I get to feel my own strength and vitality and and aliveness when I give. And that feels good. So it's not because I suffer more and then now I'm noble. It actually does feel good when I give. And so when we volunteer, we get to tap into that feeling of our, ourselves. So um, volunteering is something... I highly recommend people to do. It's something that uh, I've done through this organization called School on Wheels. If you're in Los Angeles, highly recommend it, who provide tutoring and academic support for children who are unhoused or experiencing homelessness. Um, but you can find something wherever you are to help others and experience that feeling. I think giving your money can be great, so donate money to these organizations. They all, almost always are in need of more money and funding to do the great work that they do. But I think there is a value that you both give, but you also get when you donate your time, when you actually do something with your time and interact with people. Um, that's something very, very powerful that I encourage people to do and to make it something regular. It doesn't have to be every week if that's too much, and it doesn't have to be many hours, but something regular because like so many good things, um, people want to do it or if they you ask them and say, oh, I want to, if I get around to it or if I make, if it comes up, they will do it. If you bring them someone and they need help, they will probably help them. But seeking it out ourselves, we might be less good at it. And so it takes some effort and planning and purposefulness to get us there. But hopefully you can think of how to incorporate some type of volunteering and helping others in your daily or weekly or monthly experience. Um, so I, I did enjoy the book looking at 
what I think is very important to focus on is people's overall well-being, us as individuals, but then um, as nations and as a world, what we can do to contribute to more overall happiness in the sense of not just the moment-to-moment happiness, but the more long-term contentment and fulfillment in our lives. So, um, And it's called The Little Book Of, as the other one was for Huga, um, and they are really these the books themselves kind of make you feel good. There's these drawings and pictures in them as you're reading that give the sense of a pleasant feeling. And so I, I had that feeling as I read this book. And again, the book is The Little Book of Luca by Mike Viking. Let's go to another commercial break. We'll be right back. Welcome back. So earlier this week was Valentine's Day. So recently, I I think it was last week, I talked a lot about relationships and some of what I'll talk about today was was talked about then, but just it's something that comes up so often when I see um, couples or working with individuals when they're dating, um, who they get attracted to and how much they can get hurt by who they get attracted to. And if we don't pay attention to who we're getting attracted to and then also the why, we can really end up in a lot of trouble. And so, you know, we talk about uh, red flags, even I know, I think it's less now, but it was an online trend of like posting a red flag and writing something and saying, basically, this is a red flag. Um, But it does seem that at times we mistake red flags for red carpets. So we mistake what are really red flags for the sense of something that's welcoming us and that this is something great and grand and we should want to go towards. So we mistake red flags for red carpets. And so what does that mean? It seems obvious. If I tell you something is a toxic trait, if I tell you someone is not going to treat you well, it, it seems obvious not to be with them. But we so often see people get attracted to people who hurt them, people who perpetuate the same kinds of hurts they've experienced in the past. And so they can feel a little bit surprised as to how this keeps happening to them or if you look at someone else, it could seem obvious, oh, you're, you're dating someone else that's like this again. And it could seem so easy, but we have to recognize that we're often very blind to our own um, same patterns that we are repeating. Because when you're in something, the feeling is guiding you towards where you want to go. So if you're feeling hot, you think, okay, I have to do something to cool down. And if I tell you you're actually not hot, it doesn't really make sense to you. So when you're feeling attracted to someone in the moment, it feels like, well, I'm attracted to them. What else could it be other than attraction? And attraction means it feels good. That's why we use attract. I go towards that thing. It feels good to be closer and to get closer to that object of my attraction. And so when we're in it, we're very much blinded by what's going on. And so this is why we can be in a situation and afterwards be like, what the heck was I thinking? Why did I date this person? How did I overlook these things? And often what happens is we see that it's wrong, even at some level unconsciously or even subtly consciously we'll be aware of it, but we go towards something because it just feels good. We do the thing that feels good in the moment rather than making the best decision for ourselves. And so this leads to this paradox, or especially it's a paradox when we think of what love is supposed to look like or should be like, where we think that true love or the right love and the right partner 
should just make us head over heels falling for them. And we should have this excitement that feels like we can't keep ourselves away from this person. And so it's an understandable thing to want that. And of course, we hear love songs and poems and in movies, and it's always that type of intensity. And so we think that's the real thing. And if it's not that, then it's not a real thing. Or, you know, if it's not like this, I don't want it, that kind of a feeling. That's coming from this sense that love should feel this intense way that actually tends to be very unhealthy. The love that most of us think we're supposed to aspire towards, especially the head over heels, love at first sight type of a feeling, is actually quite unhealthy. And people will often say, do you believe in love at first sight? And for most people, the sensible answer is no. And I think that's true. I don't believe in love at first sight in the sense of having this sense of a loving relationship, an actual loving feeling. But when we think about what happens, if we say it's love at first sight, if you have that feeling, what you should tell yourself is that it actually wasn't love at first sight. It's like you're seeing someone again, which means that it's someone from your past. So love at first sight isn't true because when we have that feeling, the person you're having that feeling towards is triggering something from your past. So it really isn't like the first time you're actually seeing them. And so you should stop yourself if you have this sense that I'm in love with this person already or I feel so drawn to them. It's not because they're so good for you. It's probably because they are so bad for you. They're exactly the wrong kind of person for you. And this can feel, again, very confusing. The person I feel so drawn towards is so bad for me. But it's kind of like a drug can give you that same kind of feeling. It makes you feel so good. It makes you want to go back to that thing that might feel good in the moment, but is going to hurt you, but it's not good for you. And you have to go away from it. And this analogy actually does often apply with people in relationships. And I've worked with so many people in relationships that are trying to either break up or they do break up and then they keep getting back together with a toxic ex or someone that keeps hurting them, or they keep getting hurt in the relationship, or maybe even they keep hurting that person, but it's just not a healthy relationship. And the feeling is very similar to a drug. We know it's bad, but we keep going back to it. Not only is it similar in that way that we keep going back, the ways we justify it are similar to how uh, someone who is addicted to a drug or is having an issue with a drug might justify it. Well, you know, um, I'm, I'm better off when I'm with it, or I think I was actually in a happier state when I was doing it. That's what they might say for the drug. They might say, well, I was in a happier state when I was with that person. When I was with them, wasn't I feeling good or remember these things and we'll find ways to forget the bad things that happened and remember the good moments or trick ourselves that, well, you know, they really were, they have a good heart and I know that. And isn't that what's important? Or if I keep thinking about them, doesn't that mean they're good for me? And that one drives me crazy because I hear people say this all the time that let's say you broke up with someone after a week or a month or two months or a year, if you still think about them, that means they were right for you or you should go back. And that isn't true at all. Of course, that can be true. But just the fact that you think about them doesn't mean that they are right for you. Just like if someone stops taking some drug, it doesn't mean if they think about the drug or have a craving, that means that they should go do it or it's good for them. It could just show that there's still something unfinished there or they're yearning for something and that's the thing that comes to their mind often people uh, break up 
and they're feeling sad. And of course, if you're feeling sad, you think back to the last thing that made you feel good in that area of your life. So if you're feeling lonely, of course, you're going to go back to someone you were with previously. I remember actually maybe want to go back and listen to my show because so much has changed since then or so much has happened since then. Back in, I think it was probably March or April of 2020 when the pandemic was starting and something that I anticipated would happen was that a lot of people would get back with their exes during that time because there was this sense of uh, unpredictability and instability and everyone wanted to be partnered up with someone. There was this almost like apocalyptic end of the world type of feeling that people had. So it's like, well, at least let me be with someone before the world ends or to just live the rest of our lives together. And so many people were just looking for that person to go back to, not because they were right for them or good for them, but just to not be alone. And so when we're feeling alone, I see it happen with so many of my clients, rather than focusing on, okay, well, it's them, look at what's missing in you or what the hunger is in you or what you're yearning for. So often you think about that X, not because they're right for you, but because there is a loneliness or you are desiring being with someone or having a partner. It doesn't mean it should be them, but your brain is, of course, going to look to the last place that it got that need fulfilled or that hunger was no longer there. So when we are with this person or we think about being with someone, we can recognize that just because we're feeling drawn to them doesn't mean that's coming from a healthy place. Look at the foods that we tend to like. Most of the foods that really might draw you are not healthy foods or ones that are good for you. Those are the ones that are usually unhealthy for you or not as good for you, but they're going to pull for you. So if you think, well, I should have those foods that feel the strongest pull, you're probably going to eat in unhealthy ways for yourself long term. It'll feel good in the moment, but hurts you in the long term. And so similarly, when you're find yourself attracted, I can even hear myself. It sounds very boring in a way it's like okay date people you don't like very much so that's not what I'm suggesting but I am suggesting to be very aware of when you're very attracted and you have that love at first sight feeling to take a big pause and in general when you find yourself attracted to someone it tends to be unconscious in ways so sometimes we try to put words to it or we can ask you why are you attracted to this person and and it might not even be for whatever reasons you come up with I'm reminded of the study where they would ask um, heterosexual men to look at two pictures of women and pick the one that was more attractive. They'd put them face down and they'd actually give them the opposite picture, the one that they didn't think was as attractive and say, well, tell us why you think they're more attractive. And then they would come up with reasons as to why this person was more attractive. So we, we sometimes are bad when it comes to describing what makes us feel a pull to someone. But this is actually exactly why we need to think about it, because we can sometimes become aware of the unhealthy things that might be attracting us. And so what I uh, advise people to do is that if you find yourself attracted to someone you're starting to date, to really take a look, can I see anything in this person that might be similar to negative things in my parents or negative things from my past? Because we know we have a tendency to be attracted to these types of traits, the negative qualities in our our parents especially. And so can I see something similar there? And sometimes it can be hard to see that because it's not something that might show itself. Let's say you had a, a parent with a very bad angry streak and a lot of anger and rage. Usually on a first date, people won't show you that side, hopefully not. And so 
it could be harder to be aware of that, but you might notice some feelings or tendencies or sense that they might have some of those things in them. So it's something to just be mindful of. So we can sometimes mistake red flags for red carpets and we can understand why there is a familiarity there. There is a sense of I have something unfinished and maybe I can figure it out. I had this angry parent. Maybe I can calm this person down or I had this abusive parent. Maybe I can make them love me or I had this controlling parent. Maybe I can be the one in control or overpower them in some way with this new partner. Of course, that's not what you'll consciously think. But if you dig a little bit deeper, you might see that the red flags are the things that are attracting you and it's not for the right reasons. And related to that, often when people meet someone, we think of this feeling of having butterflies in your stomach and you feel so excited. I think there's this great quote and I don't know where it's from, but it says that when you meet the one, you actually won't have butterflies in your stomach. You'll feel a sense of calm, a sense of peace. And I think there's definitely something to that because what I've seen is with a lot of uh, people in, in therapy going through the dating process, at times they'll talk about someone they're dating and they talk about how excited they are. Oh, they texted me or this happened and I messaged them and they sent me this back. But then when we look a little bit closer, we see it's not excitement, it's anxiety. So the person is unpredictable or a little bit unstable and we don't know what they're going to do or how they're going to react. And that gets us this sense of being activated, but not in a positive way, like we're engaged and attracted, but we're actually more nervous and anxious. And so we can mistake the anxiety for the genuine butterflies or that good feeling of excitement that we're looking for. So we have to also be careful when someone stirs us up, it doesn't necessarily mean it's a good thing. And sometimes if someone is very stable and consistently there, it might initially feel a bit more boring, but that might be actually something far more healthy and good for us to pursue. So it's not to say to totally doubt uh, your attraction or to, to go against your attraction completely. You need to feel attracted physically and emotionally to whoever it is that you want to start a relationship with and continue a relationship with. But to be mindful of some of the ways that we might get very excited or overly excited for someone new and how that actually might reflect something unhealthy rather than something healthy. All right, let's go to another commercial break. We'll be right back. Welcome back. So um, this is a, a public service announcement to use social media less. However amount you're using it, do it less and you'll probably be happier. And, and the reason why I'm bringing this up as a public service announcement is because like many things, we might know it's good for us, but it's hard to do or we might slip back into old patterns. And um, I came across some um, reports on how much social media companies and their algorithms try to promote outrage, meaning they just try to put things that into your feed that will make you angry, which seems strange. You're like, well, why would they want to make us angry? But it's because if you're angry or you're shocked by something, you're less likely to turn away from it, or if that includes something that you're afraid of. And so um, social media outlets and then media outlets themselves to then be put on the social media, they are coming up with ways of presenting information and stories that will make you feel even more like the other side is just stupid and immoral, crazy, and really just is going to do bad things to this world and you have to stop them. 
And so I've seen it on, on my feed and you'll see people post things. And so this is one of those, in a way, cliche things because we hear it so much about polarization and about how social media is polarizing us. But it is just so true and so scary that we have to remind ourselves and become aware of the echo chambers that we are putting ourselves in. We go into you know, your Facebook, your Instagram, whatever it might be, and you're going to be exposed to things that will make you feel like you're so right and smart and the other side is so stupid, so stupid and bad and mean and, and horrible. And so um, I've even seen people, they post things that first say, look at this liberal and what they said. Can you believe this is what liberal thinks? And the same thing on the other side. Look at what conservatives think. And so it definitely does matter when politicians say things and people who have that uh, more impact and effect on how things go in the country. But when someone writes something, well, of course, anyone from, you know, from any group, you'll find people that believe and think things that are stupid or extreme or are way on the edge of what most people think. And then you'll come to the conclusion, look at what half the country thinks or what that whole, uh, let's say, in the, in, in the U.S., the Republicans think or the Democrats think. And then you just, uh, you know, have a wrong mindset of what's going on. And so people think the other side is just really really stupid and crazy. And I, I've seen this and when you see it most clearly is when people are in a space of the opposite group, or in this case, let's say a conservatives and around liberals or vice versa, or if they don't know, the type of jokes or the things that people say as a given show how different the worlds are that we live in. So they'll say, well, you know what, that's, that's because of this. And it seems so matter of fact for them, but we can see that people from the other side who have been exposed to their own news that's been different from theirs think what are you talking about it's practically exactly the opposite of that and so again going back to this outrage and how the social media outlets are selling us that and it doesn't have to even be in this conscious way that they are only choosing those things but those are the things that capture our attention the most they're trying to make you get upset and so You'll notice that if you go online, you might even feel that way. You get upset and you get angry, but then also you do leave with this self-righteous feeling. You leave thinking, yeah, see, look how stupid those people are. And I'm so smart to think the way I am. I am so moral to think the way I am. I'm trying to help people and make the world a better place. And my enemies are these people from the other side who are wanting bad things and trying to make the world worse and make people's lives worse. And so that's something you might feel is that outrage at first, but then you leave with this sense of self-righteousness and a reminder of how right you are. And so a lot of what I see, I mean, this happens in all of our interactions, but what you see happening in social media, even with things like cancel culture, or in this sense of outrage and then putting out uh, and retweeting or reposting the stupidity of the other side and how wrong they are, it's a reflection of our own uncertainty from within that we project out. So, for example, cancel culture. Now, I think when people are being racist and prejudiced and they're putting things out there or acting in ways that reflect those values, it's important for it to be called out addressed and dealt with. So it's not that we should ignore 
racism and sexism and different types of hate. That's unacceptable. But what you do see when we look at the extremes of, of cancel culture is that sometimes someone will say something not that bad or has maybe can be seen a certain way, but much more gray. And then they'll have like this, you know, cancel culture mob attack them and, and put them, you know, try to cancel them, try to ruin their career, ruin their lives. And this, this, this does happen. I forgot the the book. It was, I think it was like, So You've Been Publicly Shamed or something, a book I read a few years ago and talked about on the show on this topic of people whose lives were at times ruined by a comment they made, a tweet they posted that maybe was an off-color joke or they didn't realize it could come off insensitive and then their lives were ruined. And so what I think is happening in many of these instances, and if we look at it in a a more cultural way or a group type of a way, is that people are, of course, themselves, we each as individuals, we don't want to admit it or acknowledge it, but we have some prejudices within ourselves. Just living in a culture and a society and being exposed to media that promotes certain stereotypes and judgments, you're going to internalize them to some degree. That's just inevitable. And so because we have these parts of ourselves that we don't feel so good about, because we can feel um, uh, uncomfortable about these parts of ourself that are there and we maybe don't even consciously acknowledge too often or think about too much, we could then feel it's safer to attack it when we see it in other people or even project it and make it bigger in other people. So it's kind of like a reaction formation. I don't feel good about this part of myself and so I'm going to attack it in others. Um, one way we would see this traditionally when we talk about a reaction formation is if a man had homosexual tendencies or some level of attraction, they would then potentially become very homophobic and hate, show a lot of hatred towards gay people. Of, I can't believe they could be this way. How could they? And it's because there's this part of themselves that they can't grapple with within themselves that they can't accept. And it becomes much more comfortable to then attack it in someone else. It's almost like they're attacking themselves, but in this other person. And so I think what we're seeing at times with cancel culture is that people are themselves aware that they have uh, these non just noble thoughts and feelings that they, of course, harbor other types of feelings and might have prejudices within themselves. And so they attack them in others. Look how bad this person is. And of course, I can't be racist or sexist or homophobic. Look how hard I'm attacking people who might even slightly go against that or, or, or show those types of tendencies. And it's unfortunate because I think it's not being genuine with ourselves and then taking it out on other people. So again, very important to call out these things when they're there and when they're real. It's the degree and how much and depending on what they do, how bad was the crime to make sure that the punishment fits that, that I think is problematic. And so coming back to general issues of, let's say, politics, we like to find the stupid people on the other side because we ourselves are not so sure about the things we believe. You might believe in a certain type of taxation or economic policy or foreign policy, but you can't know for sure. You might want to tell yourself that you do, but you don't. And so I've mentioned how social media also promotes this because the more certain you are and you say this is definitely the way it is and if you think differently you're wrong and stupid, it gets more attention than if you have a more nuanced 
you know, I think it's this way or I have some thoughts this way, but I can see this other side. If you give a more balanced perspective, you're not likely to get a lot of attention because that's not going to capture the eyeballs and capture people's attentions and get the retweets and the shares that make something go viral and become popular. People won't react to it as strongly. And so we know that we are a bit unsure and so we'd rather find the stupidity on the other side to make us more sure of ourselves. I've seen people post videos where an intellectual on their side is being challenged by um, someone who opposes them, who would be also your enemy in this this case. And we love to see them get owned, as they say, or, you know, that they're, the intellectual dunks on them and makes them feel stupid because look at how wrong they are. And we take that to mean that the other side is just wrong rather than this is an unfair fight where you have an intellectual who has the microphone and the stage and the support going against someone who's against them. And it makes us think the ideas are being pitted against one another when it's really not about that. It's about the people who are debating and what they have to say or their own way of expressing things that is at play. But it makes us feel good. Okay, look, I must be right because look at how smart my guy is and how stupid that guy is and so my idea is better than their idea and their idea doesn't even make sense or is ridiculous and so I can feel good about that. But I think we'd all do better if we recognize that we are uncertain about these things. We don't know for sure. We might have preferences, we might have certain beliefs, or we might see evidence that makes us think a certain way or we have certain values that are important. So, okay, for me, for example, let's let, let's help homeless people or unhoused people because I think it's the right thing to do. I can't say I know for sure it's economically the best thing to do. I know that if we looked at a study, I would hope that it's going to show that economically it's also beneficial. And I have seen studies like that and they make me feel good, but I can't say I know for sure. I think it's the more humane thing to do and has the, the better value for society, even though economically I can't say for sure. And it depends on the specific policy that we are talking about. So I can understand my preferences and my biases, but I can't say I know something for sure. But we, because we want to show that we know something for certain or we're trying to get rid of that own uncertainty in ourselves, we sometimes attack others who don't know or we promote ourselves in saying we know. Or we find people who will tell us that they know our, our belief is totally right because that makes us feel good and they get our attention and they get our likes and they get our whatever it is that they're looking for and we get that sense of cer certainty and it gives us this this symbiotic relationship but the truth is you don't know and, and i've talked about how i see people post about economic issues that even nobel prize winning economists don't agree on or have a, a cons clear consensus on but they say it as if it's so true and matter of fact and can't be any other way and it's like how how is that possible or people during the, the pandemic, you'd see people joke about how everyone all of a sudden is a public health expert and knows exactly what's the right way to either lock down or not lock down or vaccines and not vaccine or whatever it is. We think we somehow know and have this absolute truth. We, we don't. No one does. And so we're looking for people to beat up or punish or put down because we're feeling weak ourselves, which is always the case when we bully other people. If we insult other people, it's because we are somehow feeling insecure or weak in ourselves and we're looking for someone to put down because if you're lower than me, at least that means I'm higher than you, so I must be doing okay and I feel good. But the truth is that I 
don't have to put you down. I can just acknowledge that I'm human and I have my own uncertainties or things that I'm dealing with, but that's just the reality of the issues that we're talking about. No one can know these things for sure and no one knows these things for sure. So just be mindful of this, that when you're going on social media, I felt it before too, that I see an article or a video and you have a feeling towards it that it's going to make me feel good. It might even make me feel mad at first of how stupid they are or how whatever it is that the other side is. But be aware of that, that you're going towards that, not because that's the full reality of who's on the other side of whatever belief you have, but that you have your own uncertainty, but that that's okay, that you're going to have uncertainty. There only is one way to have opinions about these things, and that's the reality of it is you don't know for sure, and that's okay. So don't look for others to put down, others to make them look stupid, to make yourself look smart. Recognize your own lack of certainty because these issues are, in this way, uncertain, and that's totally okay. So again, a public service announcement to use social media less. It's not black or white, doesn't mean don't go on it at all. But if you use it 20% less, I doubt um, you won't be happy that you did so. Let's go to another commercial break. We'll be right back. Welcome back. So in the last segment, I was talking about how we can go online to find people that disagree with us, but that are made to look stupid or might even make us angry to see how wrong they're being, but that's really to make us feel better and to deal with our own sense of of uncertainty. And I also shared how cancel culture can be related to the similar theme that because I'm um, carrying my own biases, prejudices, that I'm looking for others to attack and to project that onto, out to others, to attack it in others and also to show how much I am not this way or because I'm attacking that person who's saying something in that realm. So canceling someone is this term that's only been around for several years now. Um, but has definitely affected many people. And so that can be wrong. I think sometimes there should be consequences when people take certain actions. And sometimes you do see that where people use the word canceling when we're really talking about consequences. So if you do something illegal and you get arrested, you can't say they're canceling you. That is a consequence. Uh, But of course, many people have been canceled or have been, people have tried to cancel them when really it was not justified. Now, on the other end, of the spectrum. So we have canceling, but I think often it can be good to look at opposite poles of things to see the the different sides of what people experience. We have canceling, but there's something that's the opposite of that, which might be trying to serve the same purpose. So um, especially when we're talking about looking for the, the people online to think they're stupid because of our uncertainty, we might go to the other extreme and we might believe what someone is saying 100% without critically thinking about it and thinking they have to always be right because it does that same thing. So I am uncertain about what I believe or I think certain things or certain things feel right to me about political issues, moral issues. And because I have that uncertainty, that doesn't feel good. And along comes someone who says they have it all figured out and they know about these things. They're not uncertain. I know it's this way. 
When it comes to this moral issue, this is the way you do it. And if you don't, you're wrong. And if you don't, you're immoral. So if you believe like me, you're a good person. And so to the uncertain person, this can feel really good. It is very comforting to hear someone who is so certain about the things that you're feeling uncertain about and things that might be important and significant things. So the moral issues, decisions about even, let's say, parenting or decisions about how to live your life or how you should vote or how you should view certain things. And so if someone comes along and is so certain, that helps you deal with that uncertainty and we can understand that attraction. And I, I was talking about something like this in the previous segment so we can have this very symbiotic relationship. The person who is feeling uncertain, which many of us do, and then the guru who comes along and says they have it all figured out, who then makes us feel comforted by their omnipotence. So it definitely has this feeling of turning them into a god, because if they're all-knowing and they can't be wrong, and their voice never goes out like mine just did, um, then I can trust them 100% and I don't have to worry about anything. I don't have to worry about being right or wrong or, or figuring things out. And so there is this symbiotic relationship there, and that person wants to be elevated to this godlike figure. And so we see this very um, unhealthy but at times balanced type of a relationship, or at least balanced for some time. And the person keeps telling them how to think, and they say, okay, and they follow it. And so when we see things like cults and we see movements that happen in this type of direction, it can be shocking. And first of all, when people go into cults, it doesn't usually start at the extreme from day one or never does. It slowly builds to that point where people start doing things that we can't believe or can't imagine we would ever do. But also we can see that there is this, always this drive that we're going to have dealing with the uncertainty of things, uncertainty of life and the anxiety of life that will make us strive towards finding someone who will pacify that anxiety. You could think about a child and the feeling you have as a small child going into your parents' arms and feeling so safe. It's such a nice feeling. Even we can still imagine what that could feel like. And you might have someone in your life that gives you that at moments. But there can be a way, the reason why I'm saying it in the childlike sense, that a child might even, in an unrealistic way, feel so safe. Uh, sometimes I, I think about how a child might be afraid of a monster in their, underneath their bed or in the closet where they thought they saw something. And then they run to their parents' room, jump in the bed and jump in their arms, and now they feel safe. They're so comfortable. We can understand that feeling. But when we think of the, the logic of it, usually for imagining a monster, our parents would be no match for that monster if it was real, if it was coming towards them. And this is why it can actually be in that way comforting for us to idealize our parents, to think they're so strong that, that they, nothing can, can defeat them. Not, there's nothing to be afraid of as long as I have them. And, you know, this is why we can hear... Um, maybe more boys, let's say, talking about their dads and whose dad is stronger. Oh, my, oh, my dad is so strong. Oh, my dad is so strong. And so to them, this that sense of having this powerful parent that can take care of them, it is so comforting. And we can understand that. So it makes sense. And maybe at that stage of our life, we need that when we are so fragile and we can't take care of ourselves and the world can feel scary. It can feel so nice 
to have that comfort of this parent that we might even exaggerate their strength because that feels good. And so we don't completely lose that just because we're older. We can take care of ourselves more as we get older. We can protect ourselves. But that sense of the anxiety and the uncertainty doesn't disappear. It's part of the human experience and one that we always have to balance. Kind of like death anxiety, that fear of death. It's not something that disappears. We, we have to find a balance, I think, between not, of course, being so focused on it. If you're so focused on death, you can't even enjoy life. If you're so worried every moment that I could die or what if I die right now or my death could be there at any moment. But of course, we're at the other extreme. That's not good either. And most of us are probably there where we live almost as if we're never going to die. If I asked you that, you would never say you're immortal. You're never going to die. But the way we function is almost as if that there will always be time to do this thing later, or I'll always have time to start something new or become a different person or take on a new skill. I can do it later. We always have this not now later type of a mindset, which lends itself or is related to the sense that I have forever to do things when that's not true. So I think actually the healthier uh, way of being is somewhere where we actually have a very clear recognition of our own death. You can't live a good life unless you recognize your death or you can't take your life seriously if you don't take your death seriously. And so we have to find a way to deal with that. It's not that your death anxiety disappears or it goes away. There's no resolution that makes it completely go away, but it's something that we have to learn to balance just like the other uncertainties and anxieties of life. And so here too, we can see going back to what I was saying that we might understand our desire to find this person that can do all the thinking for us and figure everything out and is definitely right about everything. And if we find that person, then we don't have to think anymore for ourselves or worry, what if I'm wrong? But where we have to go or we have to recognize is, of course, that sounds nice and would feel nice if that type of person existed or if that was possible. So the desire for it completely makes sense. Just like as a child, it feels so good to imagine if I go into my mom's arms or my dad's arms, nothing can harm me. I am perfectly safe. Even though that's not true, we can understand the desire for that feeling. And so we can recognize that desire, but we have to recognize that it's not real or realistic that someone can actually do that. Doesn't mean at times we won't get some feeling of peace from talking to someone about some issue that they make us feel make us feel more clear or certain about it or more that we can uh, you know stand on two legs of with whatever it is that we're thinking or feeling but that sense of absolute 100% certainty about things is not something that is realistic and especially to think that someone is going to have all the answers that is really unrealistic to have and so no one can do the thinking for us we can consult, we can listen, we can read, and we actually should get different perspectives for people from people. But at the end of the day, we have to come to our own conclusion. And so if you look at online, of course, the, the internet and social media, it's a new thing, but it's not that it's making new people. It's just 
amplifying and exaggerating aspects of the human experience and human psyche. So we see this happening, as I was mentioning, there's cancel culture where people are, you know, saying we should completely get rid of someone, eviscerating someone who disagrees with something, or if they um, express something that we might ourselves harbor at some level that we can't tolerate, so we might cancel them. But what we also see is the other end of the spectrum, that we found this person who knows everything and let's listen to what they have to say. And you, you see this happening, this, this meteoric rise of these individuals that come, come up with you know, this way of living or this way of life. We, we saw it happening even with Andrew Tate, who was talking to young men and, and trying to teach them the right way to be and to live their life. And then, you know, he got arrested in Romania for child trafficking, and that's its own issue, and I won't get into that. I don't know enough about it, to be honest. But I saw him rising and becoming so popular and so many young men turning towards him as this, uh, he's so confident and so certain about things, and he knows what he's saying, and look at his life, so clearly it's working what he's saying. He must know what he's talking about, and vicariously through him feeling good and and living out some of the things he's recommending, some of which were really um, hugely hateful and hurtful, but thinking that this is the way. And his confidence and certainty, more than the message itself, often was doing the heavy lifting, and that's often the case with others as well. So we have to recognize this in ourselves. Even as you listen to me, you can think, well, I'm presenting these ideas. Maybe I know what I'm talking about. I have some ideas. Obviously, I wouldn't share them if I didn't think they had some value, but I haven't figured out these things that I'm even talking about to you right now. There's some thoughts. There's some ideas there, and I hope when you listen to me, you don't just take it as the truth. You take it as a perspective, an opinion. Maybe you think it's good in some ways, but hopefully you can also see things that you don't agree with and come up with your own reasoning or disagreements with it that then you come to some place that is your own way of thinking about these things. But we have to be careful of the temptation to look to someone who has the answers because no one has it all figured out. Life is difficult. Life is challenging. These issues are much more gray. Life issues, social issues, political issues, moral issues. There's a lot more gray than black and white. So no one could have some definitive and final answer. And as nice as it would be, to think we can find someone to do that thinking for us. We have to be careful that, okay, we might not cancel someone, but don't go to the other extreme and think that they are right 100%. And no no matter what they say has to be true, that if anyone attacks them, we should attack that person because we need to protect our leader because we're following them. And if we're following them, everything they say has to be right. You can't even challenge one thing. Okay, you might admire someone's thinking and they might teach you a lot. That's wonderful. But there's no way to say they know everything or they're never going to be wrong. Uh, Even if I hear my own shows from a few years ago, I'm sure I'll disagree with some of the things I'm saying at some level. Not because I've completely changed my mind, but because my thinking has evolved or my understanding of things has evolved. So how could we imagine we with ourselves might disagree, but that someone else has all the answers and we're going to completely agree with them. It's just not possible. So the desire is understandable to have someone that takes away all the uncertainty, all the anxiety about life. But the truth of the matter is that life is challenging. Life is difficult. We can find things to make it less hard or easier, but no one could take it away completely. 
All right, let's go to our last commercial break. We'll be right back. Welcome back. So if you listen to my show enough, you will hear certain topics recycled, and I'm sorry about that. And actually, that works because I want to talk about apologies, which is a topic that I often do, do discuss on this show. So um, apologies, I'm sorry, we, we hear those words a lot and we think of them as, as good things, but we can have different amounts or degrees of our comfort with apologizing to begin with. And so that's something that you can ask yourself. I know there is that quote, you know, I think it's, I forgot what movie it's from or book it's from, but I love you means never having to say I'm sorry. And I can get the the premise of that quote. It said, if you know each other so well, and if you know that the person loves you so much that if they, if you got hurt by something they did, then you can understand that it doesn't mean they don't love you or there's no need to explain it. Or explain what happened and I could I get that but to me it has a, a idealized um, type of premise when we look at actual relationships where you're not going to just know or there is this tendency to almost promote a mind reading that you can understand or fully know one another so I get the mindset and if we have a good feeling about our partner we feel that they feel good about us you will be less hurt by what they do or what happens so if you think someone doesn't like you and they say something, you're going to get really angry. Oh, there they go again saying that thing. And you see this happening where people are like, oh, this person doesn't like me or we've had fights. And then they say something and it really gets you upset. So there's definitely a truth to looking at the relationship, how good we feel about each other, how good we feel the person thinks and feels about us and how much that impacts how we then will personalize and be hurt by what they do. But the truth of the matter is when we're looking at relationships, we're looking at interacting with one another, we will upset and hurt each other. And there is some value in communicating these things to each other. So we tend to think of one person saying something upset them and then having the conversation. These are not pleasant conversations. People don't look forward to these conversations. And so as a result, they'd rather avoid them. So if they can find a way to say, we don't need to ever have those conversations because our relationship is so good, we might find that desirable and want to go towards that. But again, the reality to me is that we're going to have to have these conversations. Any two people living together, interacting with each other over a period of time, things are going to come up they do things that the other person doesn't like, or they don't do something, or they say something in a way, or something's going to happen where they're going to have a disagreement or an argument. So as we say, it's not about if you argue, it's how you argue, or it's not about if you have disagreements, it's how you have disagreements and, and how you resolve them. So I always encourage people to actually be more forthcoming about what's upsetting them, but also to be aware of how they bring things up, because that's also important. If you start yelling at your partner, attacking your partner, and say, I'm doing this for the good of our relationship, well, you might want to think twice about that. How you bring things up is very important. But now looking at that other side, the apologies. Um, as a therapist, I'm constantly dealing with people's emotional, psychological pain, often from their past. And yes, there's that cliche that our parents 
I've heard us so much or, you know, people say, oh, is this because of my mother or my father when they have some issue? And of course, it's not so black and white, but of course, they have a huge impact on us. They are with us in our most sensitive years, tender years, and they're the most important person in our life during those years, along with, with our siblings, other family members as well. But they have that most power and influence in our lives. And so dealing with people in them dealing with their pain, what you see is that when we've been hurt by someone, the best way to help us heal is if that person who hurt us were to apologize and to acknowledge the way that they hurt us. And so I'm not saying wait around for that or that that you should just expect to that, but that's just the reality. If someone has hurt you and they acknowledge and apologize for how they hurt you in a genuine, heartfelt way, that's going to help you heal the fastest. And you can heal without it. And so in therapy, unless it's family therapy or couples therapy, where possibly we can have the conversations and the interactions where this is happening, that the pain is being acknowledged and apologized for, it's usually people trying to heal it on their own and, and through the therapy, which can help. But still, the way I think of it is like a wound that's been opened. It can heal on its own, but if it's a big enough wound, stitches help it heal much more cleanly and quickly. And those stitches are the apology and the acknowledgement from that person. So if we can get that, we can heal much better, much quickly, uh, much more quickly and in a better way for our own well-being. But we don't always get that. And so if you have that opportunity, you can imagine that I can help my loved one heal in a better way. And not only that, there's that wound itself that I'm talking about. But when we genuinely acknowledge, genuinely apologize and let our partner or the loved one feel heard and let them share with us how they felt and go in a deeper place with that, we make the relationship much stronger than it was without that conversation. So this goes back uh, to the beginning of today's show where I was talking about happiness and if we're just driven by what feels good in the moment, well, if you're going to have a uncomfortable conversation or you're going to watch the next show on Netflix, it's always going to feel better to watch the next show on Netflix and just relax and enjoy your night than to have the uncomfortable conversation. If you're looking for what feels better in the moment, you're almost always going to go towards avoiding the conversation. And so going into it is going to be more painful in the moment, more uncomfortable in the moment, but you would do it because you believe it's going to lead to a better outcome in the long term, in the long run, of making the relationship better and making possibly yourself or your partner, and hopefully both, feel better if you have that conversation. And so when you make an apology, what I notice most is if we look at the intention, most people are making the apology for themselves rather than the other person. So if I think I hurt you, if I have this sense of guilt, or if I think you're making me feel guilty, I might say, okay, I'm sorry. Okay, we're, we're good, right? I said, I'm sorry. And so you even hear that. Sometimes people say, well, I said, I'm sorry, as if if they declare those words, everything is fixed or where the person can no longer be upset. And so we have to ask ourselves, am I saying the apology for me or for them? Because if it's, it's, if it's about my forgiveness, then it's about me. If it's about genuinely acknowledging how I hurt you and trying to make things right, then I can say it's about you or even in a way it's about us trying to make things better. 
but I want to make sure it's not just about me. But this is so often what I hear people do, or or parents will say, "Okay, fine, I, I'm sorry." And if the person, the, let's say their child is still not okay, say, "Oh, okay, yeah, I'm the worst parent in the world, and you should hate me." And they go to these kind of guilting and extreme ways of basically saying, "You have nothing to be upset about." anyway, or you have nothing to be upset about to begin with, and here you are making it a big deal. So you can clearly see it was not a genuine apology about I feel bad and I don't like that you got hurt by what I did. It's just I want to make things good and I don't want to have to feel guilty or to deal with this issue anymore. So if we have a genuine apology, there is an acknowledgement of our wrongdoing or what we did that hurt the person. There's an acknowledgement of their pain. I can see how it hurts you. I can understand how what I did hurt you. And then there's also a desire to make things right, if that's possible. Sometimes something could be currently done about what happened. Or sometimes it's something about making it right in the future. So I, I said this thing, and that was hurtful, and I, I apologize. And I don't want to, and I won't say something like that again, because I recognize how wrong it was and how much it hurt you. Making it right and also making a type of a, a promise or a uh, focus towards making things right and making things better, that I don't want to hurt you like that anymore. Because when we have hurt our loved one, it affects our trust, because they can feel like, how can I feel safe with you in an emotional way that you won't hurt me again and hurt me again in that way. But if we can show them that we are aware of what we did, we acknowledge it, we apologize, and we don't want to do that again, we're showing them that it's the first steps towards rebuilding that trust. Now, it doesn't mean just because you save in all those things, now the trust is is going to be completely rebuilt. That can take some time, but this can be a big step in, in going that direction, because now you're going to have to show them. So if you say, I don't want to say these things to you anymore, well, it'll take some time where you don't say those kinds of comments or that joke or whatever it was, and then they'll get the the feeling that trust will build back. But just the promise of not doing it anymore, although a nice step and gesture, won't mean much until the time has gone to show that that promise is being fulfilled, that you've done that thing. Now, another element of this, or let me go back about making it about ourselves, something that I've seen. Now, of course, if you've hurt a loved one and you feel like you've upset them in some way and they've been hurt by it, it's understandable you will have some feelings. So I'm not saying you should be detached. And actually, if you apologize with a completely straight or stern face, it likely won't feel very genuine. It'll feel like you don't really care. But we also have to make sure we don't go to that other extreme, which sometimes people do, they start saying sorry, and then they start sobbing and crying and, and, and making it about them. Their feelings become so intense and overwhelming that the conversation can now seem like it's about their feelings and how hurt they are. You know, even people will say, you don't know how much it hurt me to feel this way or how much I'm, you know, guilty and beating myself up that I did this or I made you feel this way. And of course, it can be nice that you care so much that it's affecting you, but you have to be very aware that when you get extremely emotional in this interaction, it could turn the conversation to one that's about your feelings rather than about the person that you hurt. So there's no, I can say exact right amount of emotion you should be showing, but it's understandable you will feel bad. And if you feel bad, you'll have some bad feelings, but it's to be aware that is it contained? Because if it's contained, then it's like even you could even tear up, you might cry a bit, 
but if it's in a way that it feels under your control, that doesn't make it seem like the other person has to come in and try to help you contain those feelings. But if you're crying and screaming and it's like, I can't believe it, you don't know how sad I am, and it's all about how intense your emotions are getting, well, then it can be difficult for the person to say, okay, continue, and now let's talk about my feelings. They'll feel like they have to calm you down. And so many times these conversations get started where one person says, I'm sorry for how I hurt you, and then they start crying and they, you know, uh, get emotionally overwhelmed. And the other person just says, okay, it's okay. Just, okay, don't worry about it. They almost just end the conversation. doesn't mean it's actually been resolved, but the way it's going, they know they can't actually get to where they need to get to. Even it's not that they're consciously aware of this, but the conversation is not going to get to a place where the apology and the acknowledgement happens. And so we just say, it's okay, forget about it. And it seems like it's okay, but the issue is still there and will likely pop up somewhere down the line. So that's one thing we have to be aware of is how we're making it about us or them is very important when we talk about a genuine apology. And one last part that relates to what I was saying at the beginning, this sense that, well, I said, I'm sorry, you should be okay, is this recognition that this apology is part of a process of forgiveness and rebuilding. But it doesn't mean just because I made a very, let's say, even if it is very heartfelt and, you know, I'm giving some requirements or criteria here, and you meet all of those and you say it in a very kind, loving way that's about their feelings and you acknowledge your wrongdoing and you want to make it better and you're going to try show them, we have to also understand it doesn't mean the wound has been healed. It's a part of the forgiveness, forgiveness process but it doesn't mean that it's done just because we've said sorry. And that's something you do feel at times that someone says, I'm sorry, but how are you still mad? I said, I'm sorry. And in a genuine apology, it can be really good to add. And I understand that it might take you time to forgive me, if at all. Sometimes it's hard for someone to forgive us at all, but that we understand it will take some time. And not only that, that we understand that there might need to be more conversations till we get to a place where it feels resolved. Because sometimes we open something up, we share a bunch of things, and then the person says, okay, and they, you know, we sometimes say they need some time to process it. And then after processing it for a while, some things come up for them that, you know, you mentioned this, but I realize there's also this part that I still don't understand why you did this or why this happened, or, you know, I'm still hurt about this part of it, or whatever it might be, or, you know, you talked about this, but there was another element of it that we didn't discuss. So to recognize that it's not about a one-time conversation, but that you're showing them I genuinely want to make things right. And so again, if it's about my feelings and I want to be forgiven, I'm not going to give you that space as much as if I'm recognizing it's about you and about our relationship. It includes you, but that it's not just about making you feel right about it. So in my opinion, in almost every relationship, there's going to be some significant issues that were never addressed that will require one or maybe even both, if we're talking about somebody's ugly fight of the individuals in that relationship to express a genuine apology. And here's another public public service announcement to encourage you to make those apologies, to have those uncomfortable conversations in service of improving your relationship and showing your partner or your loved one that you care about them and that you feel bad about how you hurt them. But the focus isn't about how you feel bad, but about how you made them feel bad. And you want to make things right. All right, that brings us to the end of today's show. A big thank you to Farhuda here in the studio. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Fahir Lokwi, Zan Zendegi Azadi.